Richard Flood serves on the International Leadership Council and Ideas City Initiative at the New Museum. For nine years, he was the museum's director of special projects and curator at large. And from 2005 to 2010, he served as chief curator. Prior to this, he was chief curator and deputy director at the Walker Art Center. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadalus and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info. He has taught at the Rhode Island Institute of Art and Design, the Royal College of Art in London, and the National College of Art and Design in Dublin. His writing has appeared frequently in art form, parquette, and frieze. Richard Flood, welcome to the Creative Process. Thank you. This is something you've been involved in for a long time, of course, the Creative Process. <laughs> yes. Um, and um, I best, most recently, um, or your deep involvement as a curator and now director of the Idea City at the New Museum and the International Projects Initiative. I was so um, heartened when I uh, read, as I know that you, you were transitioning to a new phase at the New Museum, and uh, where the director, Lisa Phillips, uh, wrote about you, that you are the poet in residence. It <laughs> was very sweet. Yeah, he's fostered many, you know, young talents, and uh, to, to just list them, it's it's immense. But it's a creative activity curation, and I was interested in the beginning of your book, a collection of essay notes from the playground. Um, you began it with it. It was an essay on Paul Tech. Regardless of my own beliefs and my own doubts, it is my opinion. This is a quote by Ingmar uh, Bergman that art lost its basic creative drive the moment it was separated from worship. It served an umbilical cord and now lives its own sort of life, generating and degenerating itself. In former days, the artist remained unknown and his work was to the glory of God. He lived and died without being more or less important than other artisans. Eternal values, immortality, and masterpiece were terms not applicable in his case. The ability to create was a gift. In such a world, flourished invulnerable assurance and natural humility. It's a big statement. Yes. <laughs> How would you, and I know that was in context. I you, know, yes. which fortunately I don't have to live up to. Um, but yeah, how would you contrast with, you know, the mission uh, and your work at the new museum? And Well, I mean, I need to start at the Walker mm -hmm. Art Center, which... Uh, yes. uh, was kind of, well, I'd done a number of things by the time I got there, but it was my first institutional role, and I was chief curator there and had the opportunity, went there specifically so I could work with an amazing woman named Kathy Holbrush, uh, who was the director, and uh, I think who had this... She just had this amazing ability to universalize everything. There is not just one modernism. And particularly for an institution like the Walker Arts Center, uh, it was modernisms. 
And that was what we had to keep in the front of our minds at all times. That when we're looking at art, when we're thinking to build the collection further, that we need to really think about like modernisms. Don't get caught in a back alley. However, you're perfectly, it's perfectly wonderful to walk down the back alley and find things that there that scare you, amaze you, creep you out, buoy you up. Uh, it, it was all it was all there for the taking and you had to be aware of it and particularly as a museum that specialized in contemporary art used that as its starting point. Uh, it was also very important to like really keep your eye and mind aware of international art, global art. And that was another thing that, that uh, Kathy brought uh, to the museum. And I had the good fortune of being a quarter of the way into her tenure, you know, so it was, uh, it was a very active relationship and the curators were wonderful. I mean, they're all still among my best friends and we see each other several times a year and uh, remain enthusiastic about each other's projects. Yeah, so that's, that's your, your path into art and into art curation and how she formed it. And I guess we should talk about the new museum that led you to the new museum. Absolutely. And yes, and its unique mission, which I don't know, it kind of aligns with Walker's as well, yes. Yes, uh, it's very different mm -hmm. because it has, uh, in these places, in these fragile little institutions, it mm -hmm. is the, the shopkeeper who mm -hmm. determines the course. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a big shift from Kathy's leadership to Lisa's leadership, yes. which is much more, in Lisa's case, she really wanted to move into the future mm -hmm. as quickly as possible. Yes. And everything was indeed a move in that direction. Mm -hmm. uh, so that became our rallying cry there is that when you're looking really look very very hard at the new mm -hmm. look very very hard at what challenges you if you're bothered by it go deeper right. you know so it wasn't don't take an easy way out and say i love that mm -hmm. why do you love it i just feel it mm -hmm. no unacceptable <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Just feeling it is not enough. Mm -hmm. If you're a responsible party, mm -hmm. if you're a member of the public, fine. <laughs> Have whatever kind of experience you want. But if you're a professional, know why you're doing it. Yes, of course, because then you have to communicate that, not just with passion, but with your wonderful educational initiatives that you have, and, and now that, that you're, you're helming with like the Idea City and other uh, educational initiatives that the new museum has been involved with for a long time, and you incorporated. And um, so but I want to go and back. And that was Lisa's vision. Yeah. And I want to go back to when you say, why are you troubled by it, or why... Why do you love it? Um, if you go back to some of those artists when you first encountered their work or when you th thought, I mean, um, some of the exhibitions um, you brought to the new museum, um, Raven and Nguyen Schwander, also the, your un, the unmonumental exhibitions, you know, what were you thinking as you were looking at those works? That we only have so much time to put things in front of the public and yeah. we better 
we better have a good reason why we're taking up our co-workers' time and why we think it's going to mean something to the public. And we've got to have the right questions. We've got to have... I don't think the answers are terribly important at all, but I mean, you've got to you've got to start with very good questions, and hopefully, if you get the public to start asking the same questions, they're going to get close to the transformative experience that you've had with the work. And so, yeah. So, as just, I really was wanting to get your reaction to certain artists or why you chose them, say for the Unmonumental series, some of the uh, artists included, you know, Urs Fisher, or yes, just to go through this, that selection process, the thought process. Um, this is the very first show mm-hmm. that a group of curators mm-hmm. who were new to the institution oh, and wow. new to each other right. did. And I mean, it was really like a child's birthday party or something. Mm-hmm. It's, is Mary Sue going to be able to tolerate little Billy? Is, or is little Billy just going to screw everything up? Uh, people were fighting to defend their point of view. Right. And it was, we were all, and remain, very, very, very different. Mm-hmm. And aggressively different. Right. Which was the difference from the walker, where we right. were all very different for our differences, but knew that we were also a team. I've I've never had that experience before. Yeah. And I don't think any other curator from my life at that time has had a similar experience moving on. Right, yes. But at any rate, ours was a a much more New York situation. So in the New York situation and the artists... The, the work that you have, you know, defended, showcased, championed, really, because with um, the new museum, it's, it was introducing a lot of uh, artists that were not... Uh, Absolutely, were new. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I just, I'm really interested in your writing process for uh, uh, Notes from the Playground. Why did you call it Notes from the Playground? Uh, because there was a Poltec drawing oh, that meant everything to me, yeah. which was, uh, well, it doesn't tell you anything you see a teeter-totter uh-huh. and one end is up and the other one is down uh, and normally teeter-totters are just kind of in between mm-hmm. definitive movements yeah. and then in the background are just these simple every child's drawing of a bird it's just like two loops yeah. and I, I thought it was the loneliest picture I had ever seen in my life and heartbreaking on some level. This is me and my sentimental read on things, but I loved it and it meant a lot to me. So it was a way to reference Paul from the very beginning. That's why I used it. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, apart from the artwork, I think it's also an interesting um, metaphor for this place where you, your home, uh, the art world. Oh, yes, of course. And New York City, you are, and yes. Yeah, no, Uh that too. It's, uh, I think somehow the playground is the best of times and the worst of times. Yeah. Well, yes, children, artists can be, maybe curators too, I don't know. (laughs) You know, it's all the the beautiful stuff and the crazy stuff and the hurtful things and the healing things. Right. that all go go on at the same time. 
But at any rate, we, we, there was a lot of talk about size and money. There are these, like every 10 years, there's like a moment that's kind of uglier than every other preceding moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because everything is twisted around mm-hmm. the market. Yes. And uh, there was a lot of talk about Monumental. And we were really, as a unit, the one thing that we did agree on was that that concept was horrible. And let's look at the unmonumental as the future. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because there were a lot of very tough, very interesting artists who were specifically going against the monumental notion. They were looking deep into themselves. They were looking for small emotions, tiny, mm-hmm. like a teardrop of emotion, mm-hmm. could also be a belly laugh of emotion. Mm-hmm. But it was like they were looking for things that other people were not looking at. And so we decided to put together a group of artists who each of us could agree were modest, visionary, human, I don't know, I could keep throwing adjectives at it, but it was like people who were, okay, we get it. It's a big moment, wants mm-hmm. large things, people mm-hmm. want to pay a lot. But at the same time, no, I'd rather do this. <laughs> I'd rather make the yeah. small gesture right. as opposed to the heroic gesture. Well, it's interesting because it goes back to how you began that uh, essay, and the, the, the Pothek essay, about the anonymous worshipful artists who, you know, as you say, an un- unmonumental, smaller scale personal artist who intimate stories, you know, taken as a whole, that becomes monumental. It's a collective. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm also thinking uh, another artist who I think came kind of to, to public attention through the new museum is Jeff Koons, who is, of course, monumental, but. They, but modest at the same yeah, time. Modest. I mean, he's a funny. He's yeah. a funny symbol because he's he's become like Satan to so many people, <laughs> and yet at the same time, he's good. Yeah. He understands the world mm. as he sees it, but it's an innovative way of seeing the world. Yeah, he's unmistakable. And it's not a parallel world. It's this world. Yeah. I mean, I think he's like a very very good artist. I mean, what we originally thought to do just because of the personalities clashing, mm-hmm. was for each of us to take one artist mm-hmm. and do however many shows at the same time of those artists as the epitome of what we meant. Right. And your artists, and uh, why did you choose them? The ones that were originally envisioned as having that we envisioned as having solo shows yes like half a floor yes were i mean i remember um isa genskin was hugely important sarah lucas hugely important these artists actually define what we're talking about so rather than doing 20 or 30 whatever ended up being artists let's just do five as long as they're the right ones then Mm -hmm. people will get what we're trying to put forward the thesis but it didn't happen that way and we don't have to make the biggest statement in the world we just want to open it with a great show (laughs) 
And you know, it's interesting because we all start off as our children are have the wonderful artistic freedoms. So there's no limits, right? And as you go to you think of things, it's on an unmonumental level that we begin. Children don't think, you know, we make Taj Mahal, no, they sand castles right. or the, the teeter totter. Um, these moments of joy, these looking for beauty or looking for what disturbs us or whatever, but it's on that level. So right. it's really important that you remind us of that. And I think of then different activities you've been involved in there, complementary, but, you know, curating, writing about art, working with artists, the, you know, studio visits. And then you wrote an essay, of course, about being the subject of an art. Then that's so. How how have <laughs> those different? Yes, how Michael Andy. So how have those different experiences? You know, to contrast them. You know. Well, um, the one thing I, I need to add was that uh, during the opening right. exhibition, there were also every month another exhibition opened mm-hmm. on another discipline that was of incredible importance to the museum and we were afraid it wouldn't be visible in the mix and so there was one show that was devoted to audio and there was another show that was devoted to media so little by little these other disciplines came into being and were all additive so what was in the beginning a very I would say a rather spare installation, mm-hmm. uh, because most of us were, dare I say, a classicist. We needed to mess it up, and we knew we needed to mess it up. Mm-hmm. And so these other things started happening, mm-hmm. uh, which was terrific. So we got a lot out and said, and each one of the other disciplines that it joined had mm-hmm. its own publication. That's right, you do publications for each exhibition. And I really like the ethos of the new museum. You have an incubator. It's about spurring ideas, I think. It's very nurturing for the, the current and the next generation yes. of artists. Again, the, the incubator was, I have to tip my hat to Lisa. She, mm-hmm. she had the concept, and mm-hmm. she really wanted us to be collaborating with people who would make a difference in the way we're looking at things. Mm -hmm. And so that became, I mean, architecture became a very important influence. Mm -hmm. While not a topic of of conversation necessarily, but an influence on the thinking about art and this moment in time. For a while, dance was a, a really important part. And that wandered away because the person on staff who was promoting the dance wandered away. Yeah. Uh, you know, and these things happen. You can lose mm-hmm. a discipline in a half an hour. <laughs> Do you want someone to replace the dance? I'm just talking to Phil Lovers, and if you, I'm sure there's lots of people who are interested in uh, filling a place for dance. Um, I don't want to lose track of that question. I want to ask about architecture because, of course, the expansion of the new museum and then, of course, the, the beautiful new museum building i would like to talk about that before. i don't want to forget about talking about ideas city as well okay and visionaries but idea city was a thrill mm-hmm. it came up at a meeting mm-hmm. there was endless conversations about ideas city or idea city or every possible oh, yeah. twist and turn and it ended up being ideas city Mm-hmm. Uh, which I thought was grammatically horrible, but, but mm-hmm. it worked. 
we were having monthly conversations with a group of neighbors from the Lower East Side. We were talking to people from Cooper Union. That was our one academic. We were talking to the storefront for architecture people. Tell me about what is Idea City? It's gone to different cities. I think is New Orleans the most recent. It's changed as it's gone to different cities. Well, we we did it in New York because we didn't know what it was. Yeah. And it really was what we were publicizing Mm -hmm. that it was, was a day-long seminar on urban creativity Mm -hmm. and how it was absolutely crucially necessary to keep a city fresh and to keep a city refreshed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the, the major thing. And also to really learn who your neighbors are. Mm-hmm. What can they contribute that you aren't? Mm-hmm. And so that's how the round table came about. Mm-hmm. And everybody who ended up at the round table, of course, had somebody else that they thought was mm-hmm. important, which led to not additional members but led to one full day a year where we met where you came for breakfast stayed for lunch and could go on to dinner if you so desired Mm -hmm. but it was just ideas barnstorming Mm -hmm. uh, and that became an important Mm -hmm. part of it and we also began to invite people from other parts of the country other countries Mm -hmm. uh, to join us and that was really refreshing because we would we would pick an one or two ideas mm-hmm. as points of discussion mm-hmm. and not be insane about enforcing it mm-hmm. just let's drift around that harbor for a while mm-hmm. and it was amazing it gave us tons of ideas we were all sitting there taking notes and getting more and more excited mm-hmm. the partners who had been invited the same happened and then we were very interested in expanding like mm-hmm. let's every other year let's take it on the road right. but what's the road where do we go mm-hmm. and then that part of course involved budgeting that mm-hmm. was bigger than anything we had even dreamed about yeah. um, and they and then the people are conspirators were great there because they would go oh have you talked to so you brought it to all and say yeah Maya Hoffman and so there's a space there that's great right Uh, Maya Hoffman always had a space (laughs) yes (laughs) because she is after all Maya Hoffman however because there were funders wandering around Mm -hmm. uh, because indeed that's their responsibility is Mm -hmm. to expand the programs of who they're working for yeah one of the first who approached us was working for a car company that was doing very good work in terms of the language of transportation they went off and got interested in a lot of tangents that were really interesting but it's interesting transportation spurs ideas you can have lots of Exactly. And it looked like they were going to fund the program. So I started working on possible partnerships in that destination. And then it turned out they changed their plan. They had a meeting, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as most people do. And they decided to take the show, which by that point in their mind included the panel, included an exhibition, 
that was concentrated on the work of the architecture practices who had made the cut. So we went to Istanbul. And as fate would have it, we were in Istanbul. And it was, in the beginning, there was so much resistance from Turks and other people when they realized that we were not handing out timeshares, that the invitation meant come, join us. Don't follow our orders. We're not here to like make up the script. Uh We're here to talk and develop a script Mm. that's useful to everyone. That really worked out beautifully. And we were uh, working with Vasiv Kortun. He's one of the key curators of Mm. this part of the century. And he, at that point, was um, running a program and developing a library for another foundation that served commercial purposes. Mm -hmm. But he was wonderful, and he he really helped us. He gave us a location, Mm -hmm. which was in this gorgeous old building, which had been a bank for years. Mm -hmm. But it was beautiful, and his library was there... It was just a wonderful place to develop ideas, and he was a wonderful sponsor. It wasn't that he did anything, but a smile of approval went a long way, uh, because he was very, he's very cynical and very like kind of, I've seen it, I've done it. Mm-hmm. And in this case, he was just like a child wandering around with the key to the city. He was adorable. So the thing began to form itself. And we did the panel, which was like three, maybe three days, made up of variations on the theme of the people who were there. And it was it a new rehabilitated space mm-hmm. on the waterfront. It was very poorly attended, mm-hmm. but you had tons of people. They were the right people were the ones that were coming. They were really all interested and articulate. And the last morning, we started getting phone calls saying, I'm really sorry, but uh, I have to be in Benaki Square. My colleagues and friends are there, and it's very important that we show solidarity because the police had just started marching against the protesters who were in the park. So that's fascinating. So the, the idea city, it's it's on the road. There's the visionaries. I do want to go back to, because we were talking about uh, Istanbul as places spurring ideas, as conversations spurring ideas, but let's talk about the space at the new museum. Oddly enough, it didn't play in mm-hmm. because it couldn't accommodate anything that we were doing. Yeah. So all of the... Uh, all of the talks, all of the conversations took place over at Cooper Union in the Great Hall, which comes with many problems. It's a fascinating historic document. There was something else I wanted to say oh, yes. about the meetings and this ongoing discussion about where we should take it. Everybody got the importance of that right away. Everybody was suggesting names. And the, the next one we did after Istanbul was interesting to me because the company originally wanted to do something in Brazil. And that was what was canceled. I had already been working there for three months. I had gone on an exploratorium mm-hmm. to Brazil, knowing that the topic we had decided needed to focus on water. I had, at that point, 
a list of incredible people mm-hmm. uh, who I did not know, but who were highly recommended by acquaintances and friends and associates. And so I met with maybe 20 some people mm-hmm. and talked more about possible topics, mm-hmm. locations where, which could be the base for it. Mm-hmm. And I came back completely convinced that mm-hmm. the cast was already there and mm-hmm. in place. The intellectual interest was very high order because of the number of schools. I fell mm-hmm. in love with the idealism of the place and the mm-hmm. ambition of the people there Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, idea after idea uh, started exploding. And by then, I was working with somebody who was brought in just to work on Idea City. It, it changed everything because all of a sudden there were partners coming out of the walls to do a publication, to do, uh, you know, to do a lecture series, and an expanded conversation series. And people who in the beginning were really kind of mean Mm-hmm. turned out be, to be really quite lovely once they understood it's not me mm-hmm. it's not us it's mm-hmm. not the new museum mm-hmm. it's whoever wants a piece of it right that's nice that you open it out it's strange you this have thing about to. it is this strange about this thing about ownership that goes about into that thing i guess going back to the beauty of anonymity or being able to work collectively and not thinking this is Absolutely. The signature, which seems to be a problem. I mean, it's interesting, but it's something that we live with. Well, when you go in as the organizer, you are the have, Mm -hmm. and everybody else is the have not, Yes. until you work it out. Yeah, I see. And you have to work it out by having hours. (laughs) It does take, I mean, it's something I understand in another level, having this traveling exhibition but it's strange but it's all just like volunteers from schools but I always like it's not as you say bringing your content as you say that you're not allowing for their own creativity you have to have a conversation with their creativity and then people open up to that but if you're bringing particularly say saying having a lot of American content and you're bringing that to some Brazil Istanbul wherever and they're thinking no but you know we have things to share to add to it and that's the beauty of the, the idea city, also visionaries. And but I did want to speak about the conception of the new museum, the building, or I don't know if you're involved with the new extension, they just announced that, but it, it is interesting. It's been going on for yeah. such a long time. <laughs> okay, that's why you don't want to talk about it. But you think about place, you know, place is important for showing off, yes. Well, the other thing, I mean, that I, I need to hastily interject oh, sure. is the fact that there is fellows right. now attached. You could see it. Mm-hmm. You could see it happening in tiny little ways. Mm-hmm. Now it's a major part of the program. The fellows come from each of the previous Idea Cities oh, okay. meetings. Yes. So there are always people who are moving forward in the structure. Uh, and there are also people who sign up. Mm-hmm. They submit, uh, submit proposals, mm-hmm. which are read very, very seriously mm-hmm. by maybe too large a group of people. Mm-hmm. But it's produced some remarkable fellows. Mm-hmm. And these people become like a spine that is constantly lengthening mm-hmm. and limbering up. Uh, and that's also key because they can 
come in and put a twist on the topic. Mm -hmm. They can bring in talent just because they're 13 years old. They oh. can bring in talent. No, they aren't. But. No. <laughs> it's funny. These are young fellows. <laughs> it's they're all right, though. I mean, 16, 17, yeah. uh -huh. 70, 80. Yeah. It's all the same in the end. It's mm -hmm. just people who are deluded into thinking they can change things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because sometimes you do have to add work from this not naivety or energy or just optimism to get things done. Yes, and it's key. Mm -hmm. It's key to the whole thing. The fellows are also one guaranteed way that the stream is constantly refreshed. Yeah, well, that's lovely too. It's also a deep engagement. It's not like an entertainment or something. It's like the ideas are put forth, but now then something comes. Right. And, they're, and they come. The one, there are ones from wherever we are. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there are others who come, sometimes from great distances. And what we do there is get in touch with the U.S. Embassy of wherever we're going mm -hmm. and finding out badgering, <laughs> twisting arms to get as much in-kind contributions mm -hmm. as, as the embassy can give us. And uh, they, some of them have really been very good. Mm -hmm. They get the program, that's for sure. Right. But they've been very helpful. We'll, we'll also fellows up with people in their own community who support that kind of endeavor. In many cases, they're kind of funding themselves to yeah. get there. And then what we do is we provide a space where they can basically live, you know, in Athens. We were in this fabulous modernist music academy. And at that point, the, the basement hadn't been used for anything yeah. and was officially never finished. Mm -hmm. Well, we were working with um, Dimitri Descalopoulos, his foundation. But he was particularly interesting because he was already beginning to look at his initiative mm -hmm. as a way to open up abandoned or previously considered useless spaces mm -hmm. in Athens. They've got a cleaning crew down there, painters down there in the basement. They rigged up a shower room. Mm -hmm. Everything was temporary. Right. And then they had one, the last meal of the day mm -hmm. was always prepared by one of the immigrant communities mm -hmm. in Athens, which sounds horrible, but it was wonderful. Uh, so that they came in and, you know, you could have a North African sure. meal or whatever, which mm -hmm. got people talking, people communicating. And art is not an elitist thing. It's yeah. Absolutely not. Uh -huh. And it was the people who were coming in and cooking were all uh -huh. volunteers. Uh -huh. So they were also mixing with the students. So there was another cross-fertilization mm -hmm. process going on between uh, the volunteers and the, the students. Um, are you... I guess you've already done Athens, so you're not going back to Athens. Because I was just going to say they have the finally reopened in September, EMPS, the Contemporary Art yes. Museum. I'm sure they're looking for... You know, we just did... Uh, Massimiliano has curated a show there, and two of our other curators just uh, curated a show at the Banaki. And, yeah, I mean, I think we'll keep working with Dimitri. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, one of our most important board members is Dacius Ioannou. 
And again, we curated a show for Deste. Mm-hmm. No, Athens has produced amazing partners. Yes. One um, of our funders who funds a healthy portion of the education program mm-hmm. is Pauline Carpetus. Yeah, I liked, I mean, this is a, a tangent because I had a project in Athens and I like you talking about some um, regions being um, very committed or I like the curiosity of people there and, and their familiarity with, you know, as you know, they don't call curators curators. They're archaeologists. <laughs> I love that idea. It's just... <laughs> it's like they don't have, in, in Italy, they don't have board members. They yeah. have members of the scientific committee. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting to think about language, and you've written about language as well as art, um, what it reveals about our thinking when you take about uh, take apart words, so we call it the humanities, but others call it the science humaine, mm. and I'm from Paris, so yes, <laughs> it's nice. It is a scientific, it's a science of being human, it's nice. Exactly. So I, I love all these initiatives. Um, I was wanting to talk. We keep. I, you keep, I wanted. To I'm talk eluding about, you on something. You are no. It was about the building. I suppose I'll talk to oh. others in the new museum because <laughs> I thought the the building the, the building of the new museum is interesting. The architecture. But if it's not something you want to talk, we could speak about the wonderful. The first museum. one doesn't seem that long ago. <laughs> yes. The first new building. Yeah, that's what I mean. Let's talk about that one because we don't know about the new the new wing yet. It's well, we know what well, we know. <laughs> uh, the building was in place when I arrived. Yeah. I hired Massimiliano. None of us saw any uh, anything about the origins of the building, and everybody who had was already gone. So we really came in to a fait accompli. And with this one... With the new building, everybody contributed in one way or another. Mm-hmm. But this was Lisa. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lisa had wanted to work with Rem for forever, and that would and he was just unavailable for the the, pre, the previous building. He cost too much. He was too arrogant. It was all, all the stuff. That, but when the opportunity came around, he was a different person. Mm-hmm. And Lisa's determination had not flagged whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, so they got together again. He was able to have another vision mm-hmm. that was affordable. Mm-hmm. And um, he was not so against collaboration. He was not collaborating with that many people. Yes. <laughs> and very few of them were on the creative level. But, I mean, I think the pleasure of this for the director of the museum Mm -hmm. was that for her it was a collaboration. And she could begin to to think about the building she wanted from the very beginning on a scale uh, that was impossible then. Right. No, it's and it's so important it has to be collaborative because you you were the, well, the New York... The visitors are the people who use it, and you are the people who use it. You have to. It has to be a conversation. Um, because we've seen other buildings that have not, um, that are designed other than for what they're used as. Yeah. So I think, I think I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I, really, I like the, the, the current new museum. Uh, but let's go, we didn't really discuss the history of going back when um, Marcia Tucker's vision, you know? And that's, of course, evolved over time. But when the initial new museum was formed, what was the landscape like? And how was this new? 
I mean. Well, the landscape was fairly grim. I was in New York then. You could not avoid meeting Marsha. She was everywhere. She Mm -hmm. was like a person of bounteous goodwill, or so it seemed. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I never really had a lot of interaction with her. Mm -hmm. I don't think we sat on one panel, but I would see her. Mm -hmm. And she was always a pleasant and optimistic person in the landscape. Mm -hmm. And she was also tough. And her politics were, she wasn't hiding them from Mm -hmm. anyone, which was very unusual uh, for anybody in the uh, museum bureaucracy. Because they had to keep, I mean, they're public servants, Mm -hmm. and they had to keep that in the front of their mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she never did, which is what kept getting her into trouble over and over again. But she was fired from the Whitney, where she was the most popular curator, but the the trustees hated her because right. she was always looking at them because they were the richest people in the city right. at the Whitney. And so she knew she was never going to get them to give her the time of day. Mm-hmm. And she decided when she decided to start mm-hmm. a new museum. Mm-hmm. And she got a little storefront, some backing mm-hmm. for the rent of this little storefront. And just they started doing little shows. <laughs> From yeah. their little storefront. And that, well, there was an important aspect of it, too, with the windows out into the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The mm-hmm. storefront, yes, exactly. Because we think of the high walls where we, we don't normally see. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. And it, it lasted. I mean, nobody, I don't think anybody would have given her 10 cents uh-huh. on a bent how, if she could make it through a year. Right. But she did. And she kept moving and nudging mm-hmm. and until she got like a bigger storefront and a more ambitious plan for staff. And I'd just like to think, I mean, we already mentioned uh, Jeff Koons, but I think of the artists who have come through the museum and come to prominence. I mean, they were celebrated early, I mean, early on in their mm-hmm. careers, artist Christian Boltanski, Bruce Nauman. I don't know if the notable artists who who were really nurtured, fostered. It's hard with Nauman. I think everybody discovered it. Oh yes, of course. Like artists are, yeah. They. I I found him. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they discover themselves, but they need, of course, curators who see share a vision. Absolutely, and Brazilian artists, they were yeah. right there, and with important installations, they got yes. that too. Yes. You know, they really knew, they really made it clear that everybody knew that they were very involved and interested in installation work. They were also interested in penetrating the neighborhood. Uh, So things that were reciprocal Mm -hmm. with the neighbors were looked on with great affection. I mean, when they moved to, I think it was Broadway, when they moved to the new school, that was when I began attending shows with regularity. and I'm a graduate of UCLA. As an art history student who is currently pursuing a career in the art business and museum industry, it was fascinating to listen to this interview with Richard Flood. Having visited the new museum once in New York, it is really insightful to hear about the thought process that went on behind building the new museum architecturally and conceptually. 
I found it very interesting that the new museum team chose to focus on the unmonumental, which is quite inspiring as it promotes us to shift our focus onto the small things and their values. When Richard said to dig deeper into the things that bothers you, I could really relate to that as a creator myself. When looking for inspiration, artists often ask themselves, what else can I create art out of? And we often look into our past or current struggles and difficult experiences that need to be brought out to elicit deeply meaningful art. I also really appreciate hearing from Richard about how the new museum is spurring ideas for the next generation. I believe it's really important to educate for the future, and it seems to be one of the key goals that the new museum really values. For an art auction that I had conducted in high school, one of my goals were also to help young people and teenagers to come out of depression through submitting artworks about happiness, so I can really relate to Richard's conversation about that. Idea City is also very fascinating, and it is like bringing together new, fresh, and unconventional ideas. I also like how the ideas that stem out of the new museum team and their fellows spread elsewhere all around New York City and the world. It shows how the museum is very well connected and actively engaging with the outside world. That is a big takeaway from this interview with Richard. To spread your network and allow other people's ideas to intermingle with existing ones. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Richard Flood at the New Museum. So, I'm thinking about your writing about art. What do you gain from writing about art? How does that bring it to a d- deeper level of understanding? Or what have you learned? To, you know, I, learned I learned what I think about it. I mean, because until you have to articulate it in words, mm-hmm. and you know those words are going to end up on a page, you're not really responsible. Mm-hmm. You're not driving the car. You know, so, oh, gosh, I didn't jump the light. They jumped the light. Without the writing, you don't have to take the responsibility. Yes. You know, and I've said very, very stupid things in public Mm -hmm. that has gotten a lot of people angry at with me, Mm -hmm. uh, critics as well as (laughs) artists, as well as neighbors. But the thing is, if it eludes being something that you could call evidence. Who cares? So are there instances of work which you have like an immediate visceral or reaction but you can't express in words? I mean... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, even though you really love them or whatever, but is it always that the work you love the most, sometimes work you might be more, not indifferent, but you might not feel as strongly about, but you can translate it well into words? Well, I mean, for a long time, I wrote reviews of exhibitions. I think they were probably mediocre or fine, but not necessary. But I was a dealer, which was already unusual that they were letting a dealer write. Mm -hmm. But they they did, and it was fun. What happened was, as I stopped working as a dealer Mm -hmm. and went to the walker, and when I was at the walker... I got, I was working primarily for Parquet, but somebody said, look, the thing now is 
you can write, but you can't publicize. So the people you're writing about either have to be dead or almost dead or so close to being forgotten that that you have to step in and stop a suicide. So those those were three really interesting criteria to be working from. Is it an strange compliment then to be written about by you? <laughs> Does that mean I'm going to go? <laughs> How close am I? <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. I mean, I didn't publicize. It wasn't like <laughs> they hear it clanging. You're from it's me. the I death wagon. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> Going from being a dealer to being a curator, how did that change? It was part of a long process. I was working at Art Forum. I was writing for anybody. I was consulting on different projects. Nobody ever got in my way. And it wasn't like I was pushing out people out of my way. Mm -hmm. It was just nobody thought, well, let's stop him for a year or two. Everything that I wanted to do, I was given permission to do. I was happy that I was no longer writing reviews. It freed me in a way I never expected. You can be more uh, creative then. With the essay, you can just, you have this, you have this space. And you have to think of things, really think of things in a context Yeah. as well, which for me is enormously helpful. Mm -hmm. Because I'll see a lot of things and I'll think, I hate that. But if I'm forced to write about it, or I come around and want to write about it, it's a much more thrilling process. And you think very deeply about your, the artists that you write about, the subject you write about. And I think it is a creative process in terms of it also gives to the readers, but also to the artists whose work is reflected on in that way, it can help generate ideas, I'm sure, and just even those deep conversations. He says, oh, this, he gets it. Oh, he gets this out of it, and I didn't even know that was there. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And there's, I mean, there are also levels of commonality Mm -hmm. in the artists that one is attracted to. Okay, well, let's talk about them. Some like uh, Matthew Barney or Douglas Gordon, Robert Gober. Paul Thackeray mentioned Michael Landy, uh, Alice Neal. What is the, the thread? What do you find? Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> For a while, I thought yeah. that's what I'm after. I'm Wait, were you, you raised Catholic? Catholic. Yes, but in terms of your relationship to it now? It's in my head all the time. It's in every aspect of my learning. Uh-huh. In high school, I had... The Benedictines, who were incredible, who I still owe a debt to. And then in college, it was Jesuits, who I owed less of a debt to. <laughs> <laughs> um, Good disciplinarians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, and logicians, yes. <laughs> which I hate. What begins to happen is that if you've really fallen in love with somebody's work, or the essential nature of somebody's work, Mm -hmm. you tend to also start stumbling on commonalities. You know, and Bob Gober, Mm -hmm. for example, was the ideal artist for me. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same kind of Catholic upbringing, the same, he's much more obsessed Mm -hmm. than I am. But at the same time, I know 
what he's talking about. And I appreciate uh, his problems with the religion. I think he's more plagued by it than I am. But still and all, it was like, you experienced that too. Right. You know, so it's selfish when you start, oh, Bob, he's, he's, we're so alike. As problematic as religion can be, and some people, of course, distinguish that from private spirituality, but it also gives us a vocabulary, and of course, the rich heritage, you know, the symbols that we use, that the grammar we think mm-hmm. in, it's interesting. Like, if you imagined a world without religion, it's very hard, I don't even know if that would happen, but uh, is it possible? Why bother? Yeah, it it's a hypothesis. It's, I'm just, yeah, I'm totally not interested. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Yeah, and of course it wouldn't happen. Uh, well, I'm sure we'd find something horrible that we can do to each other that would take the place. All right, so it's yeah, we just find another pretext. Yes, for, <laughs> for discipline. <laughs> yeah, so Catholicism, and you th- you think about it, what aspects of Catholicism? Decor. I mean, visually. I've had it in my brain since I was a tiny little thing. Yeah. I think it was an incredible privilege mm-hmm. to have the art constantly in front of me, even mm-hmm. if it was for all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think the stories mm-hmm. are so grotesque and mm-hmm. horrible that they prepare, prepare you for a level of uh, kind of operatic, well, hysteria. You know, that you, all right, I can conceive of that. I I know what Judith is experiencing Uh when she's decapitating Holfernes. So at a very early age, you're filled with this really weird, uh, these mythological narratives that are about power and suffering and not a lot of fun stuff. But all beautifully portrayed. Yes. Yeah, I don't know what more I have to say. It's it's also that, but again, you're back in the world of architecture. You're back in the world of adornment. You're back in the world of overstimulated spirituality, and it's it's a rich playing field. Well, it does it does stimulate dreams or maybe nightmares, as the case may be. But it's interesting because the museum as a place of I don't know, worship, but it, it seems more and more people are growing up without religion and they visit museums in a more, um, not quite as churches, but as a, I, I, when I visit museums, it's sort of spiritual. It's a moment of pause mm-hmm. and meditation. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's just certain images. Uh, I think like the thousands of Sebastians that are out there in the world and people are looking at at this as, you know, like this weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, Sebastian's interesting because it's a psychological <laughs> disorder. Oh, well, the ecstasy of it is interesting. Yeah. I always thought it's about ecstasy, but yes. Yes, yeah. but I'm also thinking, uh, um, like there are Sadian aspects there that yeah. are... Self-inflicting, you know, self-harm? Or well, not masochism? literally. Well, I mean, I guess it's like this weird combination of sadism and masochism. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <To> another <laughs> uh-huh. century. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, 
And I do think, I mean, I think you see so many of these scenes from the martyrology and that it's this double it's mm-hmm. always this double conflict neither of which is ever resolved in a way that results in any kind of positive ecstasy and it is troubling because they're compelling images and it's troubling because what does it reflect upon i mean it's so weird because um the artist eric fisher was we were talking about that and he was saying that the the imagination for thinking about hell is infinite like it can go you imagine hell you know and <laughs> demons flames whatever you know lacerations every and all the different varieties but then heaven is you know it's just boring <laughs> it's like this so yeah what does it reflect about us that i am drawn i'll just say maybe not you but i am drawn it's hard to look away. Because it's forbidden. Mm. I mean, I think that's part of the allure is the fact that you know you, why am I interested in this? Yeah, and then the, the weird thing is the pretext that it's supposed to be religious. Yes, yes. This is an image of a rape or, you know, or about to be... Let's know. be fair. <laughs> Let's be frank. I don't know, but I guess... There is something, this tension release, by externalizing it, outsourcing it to mm-hmm. other characters, historic characters. It frees us from the implication somehow of living it ourselves. For sure. Uh, no, ritual is very interesting. And then, of course, you've kn- known and worked with many artists and, and their rituals. What were some of the interesting rituals that you came across or uh, practices that... I mean, the one, the one person who, for a period of time that I spent a lot of time with, was Richard Prince. All oh, right, yes. And I don't know whether we're on speaking terms now or not. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's an interesting lead-in. <laughs> I, I left the city, he stayed in the city, and uh-huh. uh, things happen. But at any rate, Richard, uh, he's a brilliant writer, first mm-hmm. and foremost, I think one of the best social critics around. Mm -hmm. But he also has this absolute passion for the lowest commodity in humor. Oh, yes. Which he, in my mind, manages to make incredibly elegant. Mm -hmm. You know, so it becomes very hierarchical Mm -hmm. with Richard and Richard's world. and just even the telling of a joke or the phrasing of how you tell the joke, I, I am really aware of, of that because of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he's, you know, he is another one who is unconscionably brilliant mm-hmm. because he does not a lot with what he could. He does a lot with what he's got, but he has more. That's always been kind of a regret that he's ending up in an ambiguous or he is at this moment in an ambiguous place. Right. Kind of like a trickster. People aren't okay. sure. That's always the risk, people changing shape or people reacting to different stimuli. Yes, but it's him reacting to them mm-hmm. more than them reacting to him. Right. I think his, his view of the world becomes increasingly moribund. I also think he's one of the most brilliant artists for this moment in time. Right. 
So that's strange that ha- that's how that exists in one individual and how, I mean, okay, genius. So you've encountered many genius. And how does, or, or do you believe in that concept? But let's just I say don't very know. talented. I think, I think Richard is a genius. Yeah. I think Bob is something else. To say it's more complicated does not strike at the, the root of it. Um, Bob is somebody who is easily given to making judgments. I think, I think geniuses don't do that. I think, I think the genius is beyond making judgments. That allows them to bring it beyond. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. So we have to throw away our fear if we are to try to touch the I fire. I believe so. Yeah. Uh, I think it's very, very hard. I certainly haven't done it. And, well, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit wary of the word genius, but we all sort of know what that is. You know, we know it. So we're not, I think it's just we're afraid of award. saying. It's an award. It's like the biggest award. <laughs> but yeah, and, and that it usually comes with its own complications. Yes. It's almost like uh, people who, another word for genius is someone who's so talented that they could get away with a lot. They could well, just say, fuck off, you know, right. because they're a genius. They can get away with that's it. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, I think about some people now who've gotten away with things for a long time, like, I don't know, Woody Allen or something. <laughs> and it just, it had, could have only been, that's I don't know, talk. Weird. <laughs> yeah. It's just, but I wouldn't mean to, but yeah, it, because they have an aura of genius. Yeah. And they think, we better not touch it. <laughs> Just let it exist. Um, so, so Richard Prince, um, yeah, not, um, and not having judgment, going with the ideas, um, and others? I don't know. Tech, I mean, the, he would fit into, he's like a literary character yeah. in my mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bob could be a literary character. Right. They're the stuff that novels are written to try sure. and make. Right. So subtle genius. Make Maybe legible. grades of genius. Or, yes, yeah. Because yeah. Uh, there are a certain areas, I mean, where, where Bob is amazing mm-hmm. and sees things that, that nobody else sees. I think on some level, a genius also implies a certain kind of damage. Oh, right. They're so damaged, they, they need to work their way out of the... Yeah. Problems, right? yeah. Okay. So tangled, and that's it makes it unpredictable. Right. The light is shining all around them, but they're in the dark. It's right. uh, strange. So it comes from a dark place often, it seems to. Uh, and I've also noticed it might be something that's often applied more to, am I right, to men? Is this something, or maybe is that just a, a bias? No, that still you're absolutely. You're, you're quite correct. I'm, I mean, like, one of my favorite artists in the world is Sherry Levine. Then you try to work with Sherry, and she becomes mm-hmm. so extraneous to your mm-hmm. <laughs> your life, your way of thinking mm-hmm. of every because she's a hysteric, you know? Uh-huh. But I love her, right? And now I've learned better than to want something off of her, which is much easier. But she, she again, is filled with resentment, like Richard is. Uh-huh. They were left out in the cold a little too long, and they and it makes them angry. I don't know the politics about art so much, so I you know the internal working. So I didn't know he was left out in the cold. I thought he was in. I thought he was in a warm place, but for too long. Yes, before okay. And he resents every moment. You know, mm-hmm. he was born. He was born in a prison town up mm-hmm. 
in upstate New York, New York, and I don't know what his father. I think his father was a retired marine or something, and his mother was the secretary of the local boys' boarding school, and he had uh, a scholarship to go to the school. So he was like this town boy uh, who had a hair lip, which. You don't even, like, let your eyes stray. I mean, he really had to overcome huge obstacles, one after the other. Well, that's you bring up two things that are, I think, quite interesting. One thing is, and that we don't often talk about it, is that how some kind of impediment, well, you're talking about life impediment and limitations on, you know, growing up in an economic hardship or whatever, uh, or yearning for beauty or belonging because one feels one, I mean, if, I think Picasso is often with his womanizing is, is portrayed as that someone who is proving his masculinity. Um, but I don't, I, I want to talk about that, but I also wanted to bring up, it's interesting because you said about Richard Prince being left out in the cold for a while. So I remember a public conversation that you had with Marilyn Minter where she discussed that as being perhaps very healthy to her identity as an artist. Not the freedoms of that. But Marilyn is an unusually liberated artist. Yes. She really is. And I mean, she was left out in the cold. Yeah. Um, But she was seeing that as an opportunity to be free or whatever. And I think in her case it was. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the quality of the work she was making then. Uh I found compromised. Oh, wow. But she, again, she's a wonderful person. We were great friends. I think Marilyn is a wonderful story. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an example of what how, how right things can go. Yes. If you keep you're just talking about having that yes. focus. Yes. Yeah, so when we were talking about the limitations or what drives you towards art, if you have all these blocks in front of you, yes. Over and over again. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> You know, it is a kind of craziness, maybe, because you're kind of hinting at it. It's a kind of craziness to want to, you said, um, feeling you can change the world or feeling that you have this very strong voice that that needs to be heard. Um, a craziness or just a optimism? I'm optimistic, for sure. Yes. <clears throat> but I have no proof. <laughs> 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 I can't back up my optimism with anything. Yeah. Except uh, it, feel, it feels good. You know, for me, the biggest deal is is making sure that the younger generation gets involved in positive ways and that somebody is helping them think about the next place. Right. You know, yes. the next step, the next getting it right, losing some really bad values. Mm-hmm strengthening the values that are working for you. Even now, I'll have conversations with younger mm-hmm. people in the in the business and we really try to keep the conversations rather quite quite straight. Mm-hmm. And it for me it's the best thing. Well, yeah, because the questions can be you, you we began this conversation with it's important to have the right questions and to then you can communicate with your audience. <coughs> and they can be so surprising their questions or what they're thinking of. Yes. Right, and it's uh-huh. <coughs> That was why I always loved teaching, was mm-hmm. the fact that you, I can ask them the questions. Yeah, and you learn in the process. Absolutely. <laughs> my, my answers are no longer relevant. 
but theirs are. Yes. Well, no, I think your answers are relevant, but it is interesting how teaching teaches us. The teacher is yes. a teacher. There's nothing like learning about a subject, and so you, when you teach it, you know it. Um, no, and I think that that's wonderful, the different initiatives that the new museum has had really from the beginning, and reach, not just because of the Associated New School, but Absolutely. One of the things that I have been involved with that I, we haven't talked about is our International Council. Which oh, yes. is made up of people from around the globe, and there are like tw- around twenty-five intrepid souls who, twice a year, we meet up, we have a day of conversations, uh, we try to bring in a scholar, we try to bring in some artists to to eat with and to have big conversations with, and that group of people we also take two trips a year. The one being the trip to New York, mm-hmm. uh, where we meet um, during the Freeze Fair, and the other one in London in, in autumn mm-hmm. for the Freeze Fair there. Mm-hmm. And we have wonderful turnouts. We look at fascinating artists, uh, and the group of people we have there have become ambassadors for the museum in their own cities and countries, very effectively so. So that Idea City has also grown to incorporate the International Council. So everything, the mesh, is really working. You know, all the little uh, strands are coming together and weaving something even larger. Yeah, so a ripple becomes a wave. It's ephemeral, but it has all of these echoes. And the council members will welcome people involved in uh, Idea City, the young scholars, and so to their own cities. Uh, we'll introduce them to uh, their peers or people who might be intellectually positioned in parallel in a parallel situation. I mean, it's like one of the nicest perks I have mm-hmm. in my job because I also get to have conversations with an enormously sophisticated group of people mm-hmm. who know art in many cases as well, if not better, than mm-hmm. me. Yes, and then oh, going outside of disciplines exactly. too. Exactly. I think it reinvigorates all that. Yes. Um, and I would, and, and the creative process, because with our group of um, universities, I know a lot of people in art schools, and I know a lot of people that would love to in, to engage with that if we uh, and respond creatively to the ideas that you fostered through these discussions. I should ask you, and I didn't really ask you, what for you is the importance of the arts and the humanities, you know, as you were looking forward to the future? They make life livable. Their their life itself, maybe, we should say. I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have access to them. Yeah. The Visionary Series came about because we got a grant. We had to write a proposal. Yes. And we needed a vision, (laughs) right? So we invited some people in. So, I mean, it was basically sitting down with Lisa, trying to figure out what a good thing would be. And... I think both of us in the end felt, all right, enough of the new. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like everything we do is like catering to the next generation or the generation after that. Yeah. Are we doing anything for, for our own generations? Right. Okay. And what might be interesting? Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of like, why don't we look at all the disciplines and... Try and find somebody who has defined something in their life. 
-hmm. or is in the process of defining something. That could be good. Nothing, I mean, it wasn't screaming, Mm -hmm. look at me. It was Mm -hmm. a very prosaic idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we were lucky from the get-go to get very interesting people Mm -hmm. and to get people who were not necessarily ever on the same dance card. Right, yeah. And it hasn't been, it's it's an initiative that hasn't been fed a huge amount of anything Mm -hmm. other than like really sincere interest in getting the right variety of people. And I would hope, and I'm sure Lisa would echo this, I would hope that some of the people who come will stay, both in terms of audience, but also in terms of the visionaries who were there. You know, Mm -hmm. they, they, like, a lot of them have come back time and time again, Mm -hmm. or sent somebody to us mm-hmm. or given us a call like you might want to check out this person and for some of them it's been quite therapeutic no it's interesting how a good question can get people to define as you said are in the process of defining themselves and sometimes we are moving so quickly we don't know and to, for them to think how do you define yourself right. what is like well, how how have i spent my time on this planet what is my vision it's an important question um, I like, I mean... Who did I, I serve beside myself? Who was your... Yeah, who were who some of the most interesting ones who've come through, that you felt were, that you were like, wow, that, that, was, that was wonderful, and to bring them into a, a museum setting? Well, I mentioned Fran Leibowitz, because I, I don't know. She's always seems like she's, she's great. I mean, she is great. And <laughs> She'll define it for herself, for you, sure, for everyone. For everyone. And Marty Scorsese was just oh, like wow, wow. Yeah. A, a five-year-old who just kept sat giggling oh. and waving his hands. <laughs> it was, that was a very sweet evening. The one, the other director, who was Darren Aronofsky, oh, yes. uh, it was a much different experience, but... Um, and he he was also trailing a huge plop, the Noah, which was a huge hit in mm-hmm. Europe. So everything it lost in the states it made up for in Europe, and about to walk into another one, uh-huh. uh, a major flop with mm-hmm. the film that he did with Jennifer Lawrence, Mother. Oh right, which was truly horrible. But at any rate, his assistant. He likes the big things. Yeah, his assistant said at the at when the next called the next day. He said, he said you'll never know, which is why I'm telling you the questions that he got in touch with. Mm-hmm. He was able to cry for the first time since the film came out. Is that something to get someone who's because for control. him the film unknown to me was extremely important to his identity as a Jew. And the, t- the tampering he did with the Old Testament was all dedicated to his buy-in. Anyway, that was good, but I was very starstruck by him. During that, um, that particular conversation or with others, the, the surprises, the, the intimate side of people? Well, how quickly some of them make it available Yes, was really interesting. And then there were some that were really just kind of it was interesting to see who was just phony. I was very interested in seeing the woman from Chez Panisse. But she was a total phony. Because she's a, 
She was she, she got everything too tied up in the role she played. Yeah. It's strange. It was like and you Alice did Waters? all of that by yourself? Oh, Alice Waters? Yes. Okay, excuse yeah. me. I shouldn't know that. She was um, annoying. I mean, even though we know that you, you have to have a driving force and you know that. There's someone who defines this, who puts the structure and everything. But most people know in an interview not to take, even if that might be I know, be I thought case. she was remarkably naive. <laughs> but it was... You know there's an audience, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like... And she had a very long silk scarf that oh. uh, she was, I don't know, I think she had seen some Isadora Duncan I was just thinking, films. yes, obviously she didn't see the end with the, um, the, the getting caught the up Bugatti, in the tire. right. Yes. <laughs> so artistic egos, that's interesting. I didn't mean to ask about that, but yes, that's another thing. Interesting ones you've come across or how that mellows with time. Yes, and uh, I mean, most often it's there for self-protection. It's not about vanity or being ridiculous or they want their wad of cotton. How do you see as a curator? What is this thing? How have you developed your senses? How have you grown in your... I don't know. I mean, the, what are those filters you were talking about when you're looking into work and what troubles you? And I don't know. I was thinking for the, you know, for the last couple of years, it was like, what's your next show? What are you, mm-hmm. what are you getting ready to do? And I was like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I truly don't have a clue. And I still don't. My guess is it would be I would do something in the decorative arts. Oh, yes, because you're interested in design, decorative, and you don't feel that that's something that is given its proper value, or...? No, I just think it's underknown. And it gives us pleasure, yes. Absolutely. But it also can make the blood run cold. It's, I mean, some of the work that I know is terrifying. No, I think we wind up there. I, I love um, what what's happening, what you've done at the uh, new museum. We're really looking forward to the continuation of I- Ideas City, Visionaries. Me too. Yes, I think, and what the, all the you know, educational initiatives, and we look forward to, to sharing it with our students. Um, Richard Flood, thank you so much. Oh, you're for, welcome, um, more than welcome. For everything you've contributed to our experience of art, championing new artists, uh, and and also with what you with the visionary series, those who have uh, come before and are looking back on a body of work, um, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. My pleasure entirely. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Ali Chow. Assignment Editor is Sorella Lark. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anatolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.